What do you believe made you different, though? I was a shy, timid kid when I got into boxing, but I was always really competitive, and I always wanted to win at any cost. Even when I was a youngster playing football and when I was boxing or playing any sport in the street, I, I wanted to win. And I suppose that competitiveness that I had helped. But I, I don't know. It's there's a great sense of being in a fight and coming out. This sounds bizarre, but coming out of a hard fight where your feet, your eyes are almost closed, your hands are busted, your nose is broken, you're pissing blood because of the body shots you've taken, and you've come out the other side and you're okay. I don't know. There's a real sense of pride in that. There's fighters just love to be involved in these wars. Hello there and welcome to the Carl Frampton episode of An Irish Man Abroad. What a pleasure it is to have this man finally on the podcast. Carl Frampton is, of course, a former professional boxer from Northern Ireland and he fought for many, many years from 2009 to April 2021. So he is really just embracing his retirement as we sit down for this conversation. He was, of course, a two-weight world champion and narrowly, narrowly fell short of becoming a three-weight world champion. But he did hold the WBA Unified and the IBF Super Bantamweight titles between 2014 and 2016 and the WBA Super Featherweight title from 2016 to 2017. He also held the WBO Interim Featherweight title in 2018 and he represented Northern Ireland at European and Commonwealth Super Bantamweight winning the titles there between 2011 and 2014. This man knows work and knows resilience and uh, toughness better than anyone maybe we've spoken to on the podcast in the eight years of making it. 2016, he was named Fighter of the Year uh, by Ring Magazine, the Boxing Writers Association and ESPN. But here we are having this discussion as all of that is behind him. But it seems to me that Carl Frampton's image of what a champion should be is more than just somebody who had a career, won a title and then disappears into the wilderness. He's doing so much for uh, Northern Ireland and for integrated education in Northern Ireland. He, friend of the show Patrick Keelty and Liam Neeson, have been campaigning to try and get schools integrated up there at moment. At the moment it stands at 7% and that's something that we get into in the second half of this conversation. But this is a wide-ranging chat about everything from growing up in Belfast to training and the resilience needed to be a fighter and how at 21 years old he very nearly jacked it all in and considered joining the army. It's a a chat that I've been preparing for for a long time with the help of John Maher. Uh, I want to say a very quick thank you to John Drennan, who has also been plugging away uh, a good friend of the show and a former guest of the show who has tried to get this interview off the ground many, many times. We got it. We're here. And I don't think this conversation disappoints. My chosen charity partner, as always, is Jigsaw.ie. I've completed my challenge to run 2,200 kilometers in the space of 
a year. Well, it was 2,000. I wound up running 2,200. Pretty proud of it, to be honest. You can still donate at I Donate. Just search my name and give what you can to this amazing Irish mental health charity for young people, helping them equip themselves with the mental health skills they'll need to survive beyond this pandemic. So here it is. It's the Carl Frampton episode of An Irish Man Abroad. That's the small talk. Now let's get down to business. Now, your programme. What's the big idea? Well, they've grown to know the Irish much better. We've now got to know how largely their mind works. I moved over here and immediately I had to up my game. I could not have done the job I, I did for quite a number of years in Ireland. I had to go and earn my living in England. I think a lot of it's in my hair. I think there's a lot of Ireland in here. I had an Irish upbringing. 20 years after an Irishman couldn't get a fucking job, we had the presidency. It was some heightened awareness of how hard my tribe had had it in London. No blacks, no Irish, no dogs. Never has a nation so small inspired so much in another. So you could say there's always been a little green behind the red, white and blue. Our family is very Irish, you know. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we have a very special announcement to make at this stage. Would you welcome, please, the wonderful Charlie Thrigo! Carl Frampton, it's fantastic to have you on Irishman Abroad at last. Uh, I thought a good place to start here is what you're doing by coming on here and by the amount of interviews and stuff that you're doing. It says something about what you view a champion as, I feel. I feel like you have a vision in your mind that a champion isn't somebody who wins a belt <laughs> has a mansion and is never seen again once he retires. You have a different idea for you know, what your role is to be from this point forward in your life. Yeah, well, look, I, I think that I think that everything that's happened in my career, I, I, you know, I've, I've been very, very proud of. Although it didn't, didn't end the way I wanted. I've, I've done a lot and, and more than I probably ever could have imagined. And, and whether I like it or not, I've been given a, a bit of spotlight and a mm. bit of a platform and I feel like if you have that you should use it in a positive way and um yeah I'm just just trying to be a, a go through my life and, and be a decent person not piss too many people off and <laughs> and help help people when I can I mean it it isn't uh, it doesn't sound that revelatory but it's not really what a lot of former champs do do you put that down to them not understanding the platform, like you say, that you understand that you have a spotlight and that you have an opportunity to speak, be listened to. It may, it may be that, but it, 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 it also, uh, has, I'd say there's a lot of different things. It may be background and where they're from, and, and maybe they just don't care. Maybe they don't want to. You know, I, I don't really know. I'd say there's a, a number of things that would affect that, but I'd say your background and 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 kind of your family background and where you came from and your I suppose your your class has a wee bit to do with it you know your class that you're born into working class mm. middle class upper class whatever um, yeah. I just feel like me being what I am and being a, a working class guy and although I've done pretty well I still have the values of a working class person and mm. talking about a working class person. I mean, like when I when I was a kid growing up, like you were helping your neighbours out, and people were calling to you for you know if they ran out of tea bags or sugar or milk, stuff like that. Doesn't seem to happen as much nowadays. Maybe people don't need it, but that's the way I was brought up. 
yeah yeah the community one off on a bit of a, of a no, tangent there, I think, not, not at all but no i think it is a discussion that n- needs to take place because particularly around boxing because when we think about you know where you got to the club the community is what got you there it's the give and take that uh, community relies upon has kind of had a crack put through it as a result of what we've just lived through in the last two mm. years I think it is kind of crazy, though, Carl, that at 21 years old, this loss to Kevin Fennessy that I hear you bring up in other interviews, it really was probably the closest you came to doing what so many people do with boxing, which is just kind of jacking it in early when yeah. something goes wrong. Can you talk to us about how close you came in that moment to saying, you know what, maybe I should just join the army? Yeah, I, I was I was very, very close. Um and, I, and I've talked about that that defeat to Kevin Fantasy a number of times, and I've been a wee bit disingenuous to Kevin, who's who's a friend of mine, and we always get on quite well. But I, I don't want people to to make it out as if or believe that Kevin wasn't a good fighter. He was a good fighter, but mm. I believe I was better. And if I wanted to do the things that I had in my head that I I believe I could achieve, then I needed to be beating guys like Kevin Fantasy, or there wasn't much point in in, in staying around boxing. So that that defeat to him, I, I was I was going to retire and just pack boxing in, and I was thinking about joining the army because I knew that they, for a while, I was even younger before I before I was speaking about joining the army. Sorry, so I want to get this straight. I was thinking about mm. joining the army when I was about eighteen because I know I knew they looked after boxers and stuff, and if you're a good sportsman, then they look after you and take care of you. You maybe wouldn't have to go to Iraq and Afghanistan. You could stay in a gym somewhere and, and be in the boxing team of the army. Um, yeah. But the defeat, the fantasy came after that, and I had a I had a chat with my wife Christine, girlfriend at the time, and I was fed up and I was crying, and I was upset, and and kind of you know what's the point in doing this anymore? I can't beat Kevin, and I just had a chat with her and and. I, after that discussion and a chat with my dad and, and old Billy McKee, my old my old trainer and, and mentor, I decided to have another go. And I realized that I wasn't really putting the effort in that I should have. Like, I, I wasn't training as hard as I should have. I wasn't living the life of, a, of an athlete. I was training maybe on and off and, and not really dieting and, and eating properly and training hard for two weeks, which wasn't really enough. Um, so anyway, the next the next year, I, I I got the head down, plowed on, trained hard, lived the life, and I drew Kevin Fantasy in the the first round of the Irish Championships, which was the quarterfinal for me, and I was on it. And his corner threw the towel, and I was ten nil up at at the point that they'd done that, and I was, it was a one sided fight. And it was just a moment for me; it just kind of clicked, and I realised that you know I. If I if I live the life and do what I know I should be doing, then then I can I can get somewhere in this sport. So that was that was a, a huge moment in my career, and it, easily it could have been it could have been the difference of me staying in and, and walking away. But the conversations I had with people around me kind of helped me help me stay in. But easily, Kevin Fennessy did you a huge favor by yeah. beating you. I mean, there's plenty of fighters, never mind fighters, athletes, professionals who don't get the wake-up call early enough, and then it occurs later on down the road. Yours happens at 21, 
and mm. you turn the dial. Like you say, the recognition that what you regarded as hard work wasn't actually hard work, what hard work should look like in terms of your sport. That adjustment yeah. is something that, you know, a lot of people struggle to make. You said that it was just small changes that when gathered up made a big impact overall. Is that correct? Yeah, I, w- I would say that's that's correct. And it's I like to think that at, well, at times I'm sensible. Some people may <laughs> may say otherwise, but I like I feel like I'm I'm rational and I'm an irration- I'm a rational thinker and I just kind of put it together really and I just realized that I, I wasn't doing it correctly. I wasn't training right. I w- I wasn't living the life. I was wasn't a big drinker, but I was out every now and again on weekends and drinking and having hangover and not being able to train the next day. And it was affecting training into the following mm. week. It was affecting my weight um, to the point where I was having to, you know, eat very little and the run up the fights and, and training sessions. And yeah, just I just it was just small changes and I, I needed to make to make and and I did those and and they had a a huge effect on um, what was to become after that. And you know, I won the Irish Championships that year pretty convincingly. I beat a, a, a very good fighter in David Oliver Joyce in the final um, and one of the one of the best fights um, a national stadium has seen, so they say. And, and and a few people started to contact me about potentially turning professional. And that was, I, I, I knew then that, you know, I need to, I need to, I've got serious, I need to stay serious. And that's what I've done. Let me ask you this, Carl, because when you we identify this as the crossroads or the fork in the road for your life, it is about getting 100% committed, but it's also kind of embracing what it is you're committing to. And some of the sport that you are committing to, there's a nearly an understanding that there's a shadier side to it. There's a shady side to most sports, but mm. very few are as well documented as boxing's kind of dark trade or seamy underbelly, whatever you want to yeah. call it. When did you first become aware of, say, the less wholesome side to the game? Well, I suppose let's let's call it what it is at times it's 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 corrupt and it is a corrupt sport and I, I knew about that from an amateur because amateur boxing at the time when I was involved was a very corrupt sport and so it wasn't as if I went from becoming or being an amateur boxer to a professional boxer thinking that you know one word's all nice and the other word the professional game is the shady business yeah um it, it's not the way it is amateur boxing is, is full of corruption um and uh, what, when you say that, for for listeners that don't know, what do you mean by? Well, I mean, bullet? I mean, I mean, backhanders. I mean, people taking money here, there, and everywhere. For certain fighters can get medals in major tournaments, and there's been investigations and stuff to find that to find that to be accurate. And it was so difficult, and it was blatant at times when you seen fights. You know, even as you know, representing Ireland on the on the international stage, even in not even major tournaments, smaller multi-nation tournaments, you know, beating a guy up pretty convincingly and not not having your hand raised. It was always very hard when I was young. Like Turkey was, a, a, I would say, probably in terms of their boxing ability, 
not on a par with with Ireland. I think we produce better boxers, but mm. at the European and World Championships and the Olympics, the Turks always nearly had a full team. And um, Ireland were lucky to scrape one or two in at a stage. And um, I, I boxed in a multi-nations tournament in Turkey. In the final, uh, I fought a Turk. I beat him convincingly in my head. And on a computer scoring system, I beat him 1-0. And it just raises so many eyebrows. But that's, you know, Michael Conlon in the Olympic Games against the Russian. Beat him from, from pillar to post. Russian got the decision. Obviously, that's a well-documented fight. And, and Michael's reaction after it, in my opinion, was justified. Because these are these are dreams. You know, this is a dream of a, of a young man you know, wanting to win an Olympic gold medal for his company and it's been taken away from him by cheaters. So it's boxing is they're they're trying to clean up its act, both professionally and in the amateur game. But for years and years it's been a sport with uh yeah, do- dodgy people. Like Carl, the reason why I ask about it is that you know, we kind of send our kids in to take part in things they enjoy and Mm. you know it's is that it's that pure at the start like you wind up in your local boxing club two minutes from your house in tiger's bay and you've just fallen in love like it's not a it's not a a financial decision that you've made it's just it's all heart it's all soul there's no uh ulterior motives no and that, and that's why all these these people in, in, in the amateur boxing clubs are the the lifebloods of communities and we've talked about communities already at the start of the podcast and and these people are so important and, and my my old trainer billy mckee almost he's, he almost kind of i remember him talking about it before that he's like an unqualified counselor in terms of the type of people that you have to deal with and from all different walks of life coming through the gym, the gym doors, and you'd get some guys who potentially could be good fighters, but there's other guys who just want to let off a bit of steam, mm. and you need to manage that carefully. And the people in these amateur clubs, they're all volunteers. They're doing it for no money, and they're, they're helping so many other people. And Billy always said that his greatest success stories weren't the fighters who were becoming champions, but... The, the people who were maybe kind of going down the wrong path and, and because of boxing, it, it changed their, their mindset and their attitude and, and they had a, a different outlook and, and became good people after yeah. that. But like it's, I just, the reason why I bring it up is the, the kind of purity at the beginning is that it must be so exceptionally hard then to kind of, as you say, come to the realisation that there are early doors, that there's every chance that, wins clear-cut victories may be taken from you that the sport itself can't be relied upon for the outcomes it must be exceptionally hard to internalize for any youngster regardless of you know the injustices that they're seeing served out on their doorstep every day yeah of course of course it is and and there's even scenarios when when you were a kid like um, before we're talking about the international scene it was always kind of it was always a bit of a thing that northern irish boxers or people you know some people say the north i'll mm. say northern ireland but going down to going down south to the republic to dublin to fight in the national championships 
it was always that story that you were a couple of points down um, going into the fight. Now, <laughs> add that to the fact that I'm from Northern Ireland and I'm also a Protestant as well, <laughs> yeah. which there wasn't too many Protestant boxers down. around. Yeah. You're, you're th- probably three points down at times, yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's the way it was, but you just we just got used to it. Um, mm. We just got on with it. But even, look, I was playing football as well when I was a kid and, you know, certain teams would be looked after. Referees would protect certain teams depending on where you were playing and, and the area you were playing. And that's just... It's just the way it was. It's not right, but it was just something we all had to live with. Well, let's talk a little bit about, you know, the practice, you know, the practice of what you were you were doing back then. We obviously have a, a running podcast on the Irish Man Abroad Podcast Network with Sonia O'Sullivan. And a lot of what Sonia is coaching our runners to do is to get comfortable with discomfort hmm. and get to a point where you can take more punishment in some ways than you would normally do. Uh, yeah. There's so many parallels between that and what you were doing and what you were learning in those early days. Uh, then can you talk to us a little bit about coming to that point where you realize that that is what the training here, the practice is a development of resilience? I suppose it probably was was shortly after the, the defeat that we've talked about, the Kevin Fantasy. Um, even, but even when you're a kid, there's a, there's a, I think some guys have it. You either have it or you don't. And obviously you can improve it and you can, you can make it better, your resilience and your toughness, I suppose, as well, with, in terms of how fit you are and stuff. But hmm. I think that the, I learned that and I got tough probably after the Fantasy fight. And, and then when I went professional, I realized then again that was an even tougher sport. We talk about professional boxing and amateur boxing; they're almost two different sports completely. But it's I, I learned early on in professional boxing that you have to be a hard man and a tough man to do well in that sport. One of my first sparring sessions as a professional was against a guy called Stevie Bell in in Manchester, and Stevie was a, a good fighter, um, a decent amateur, and an okay pro. I think he may have won like a, a an English title or something like that. Maybe fought for a British title at best, but he he wasn't a bad guy. And, and I I went to his gym, and I was used to doing three three minute rounds or three four, or sorry four three minute rounds with a minute break. Stevie's in Stevie's gym that says we're doing a four minute round with thirty seconds break, and we're doing that for five rounds. And I, I said I I can't do that. I've never done that before. There's no way I can do it. And the coach, guy called Arnie Farnell, said that you're in my gym, you'll do as you're told. And the first day, so I'd done it. And the first day, Stevie dropped me with a body shot uh, in the last round. And I was absolutely exhausted. And it took me about two minutes to get back to my feet. Came back the next day, determined that it wasn't going to happen again. And the exact same thing happened again. So two days in a row, I was dropped with body shots. I was never dropped with a body shot after that in my whole career. And that was the very start of my my professional journey. And it just it just made me realize that you need to be tough. So there was, I had so many hard, like, uh, sparring sessions, sparring bigger guys where I was exhausted and I just kept pushing on and pushing through. And I knew that was going to be, it was going to help me to become resilient in a fight because I knew at a point that, it's going to have to, I'm going to have to be more resilient than the man in front of me. 
And, you know, it, like I, yes. this is my specialist subject, Carl. I am absolutely obsessed with what you're talking about right now, because when you say it as an elite athlete, double world champion, you know, those words trip off your tongue. Now, for the normies, <laughs> us normal human beings, we're like, yeah, but where does it come from? Like what? When you say you either have it, you don't have it, you can have it and improve it, <laughs> kind of have it, develop it. Yeah. What do you believe made you different, though? Because clearly you had something that other people didn't. Yeah, I, I don't. I really don't know. I, and I, I, I don't know. I. It's, it's difficult for me to answer that question. I, I was a, I was a shy, timid kid when I get into boxing, but I was always really competitive, and I, I always wanted to win, kind of at any cost. Even when I was a youngster playing football and when I was boxing or do, playing any sport in the street, I, I wanted to win, and I suppose that com- competitiveness that I had helped. But I, I don't know. It's there's a great mm-hmm. sense of being in a fight. And coming out, this sounds bizarre, but coming out of a hard fight where your feet, your eyes are almost closed, your hands are busted, your nose is broken, you're pissing blood because of the body shots you've taken and you've come out the other side and you're okay. I don't know. There's a real sense of pride in that for me anyway. And I know for a lot of other fighters, that's that's how they feel. There's fighters just love to be involved in these wars. Not good for your health. Certainly not good for your, for your head. <laughs> I mean, but it is something like it is what the word pride is the one that that you will hear mentioned again and again, isn't it? Among among fighters that it's uh, like you've said that you don't believe that there's anything wrong with worrying what people think of you. That awful oftentimes at the moment we're told, you know, stop worrying about what other people think of you. But you actively turn that to your benefit. And it was about reputation and your identity and legacy yeah reputation is so important i, I want to be and legacy as well the word that you mentioned I, I want to be remembered fondly for the rest of my days and, and someone who who done good things and someone who was a good person i i genuinely yeah that's that's how i feel and i, I feel like i've been given this platform because of what i've done uh in, in boxing and and you should use it to a, a positive effect but it's it's very very important to me i think legacy and i i just don't want to be a flash in the pan guy and a guy who's done well and and, and boxed and won a few titles i want to i want to do more and you know, i enjoy doing the kind of charity work that i'm doing at the minute and you know i'm an ambassador of a number of different charities and enjoy that it's, it's a, i get a i don't know it's just a real sense of I get a real good feeling about helping or trying mm. to help other people. Yeah, and I guess maybe like that's you, selfish as well. Then as well, I've had this conversation with people. Is that a selfish thing that you, <laughs> is it, is you're it almost being selfish to get the selfishness? Yeah, I yeah, mean, it's weird, isn't it? But, I, I know that the listeners will probably roll their eyes when I bring it up, but uh, I donated a kidney to my brother this week five years ago. Oh, good and, man! You know, it's regarded as the ultimate generosity, yeah. but what i've gained from it is immense like you're right the sense of well-being in you for doing something that is not doesn't benefit you yeah it's actually just for someone else is immense and i kind of i said at the time that i felt like if people knew the buzz 
of doing something this generous. Sure, nobody would run any marathons or climb Kilimanjaro. They'd just be queued up to donate kidneys yeah. because it is, it, it's a, it's an incredibly fulfilling experience. How does it measure up though to like, obviously life now is so different. When I pick up the call to you, you know, kids are in school, things are so much slower. Life must be so dialed back. The, the dog that was in the ring having the internal monologue with you to maintain the resilience fire has to be, you know, deeply asleep inside you to be able to sustain a life where things are at this retirement pace. What's what does that feel like? I, I, I don't know, really. It's um, I, I feel OK with it. I, it wasn't I'm I'm different from from most boxers, most box like. Probably every other day, someone asked me, how does it feel to be retired? Are you missing <laughs> boxing? And and I would say no. And I, I don't miss it in the slightest because it was so hard. And, and mm. it was so I understood that it was hard. I didn't I didn't want to be doing these hard, grueling training sessions. I didn't want to be running up mountains and, at altitude and, and training in altitude chambers and, and being away from my family and my kids. But I knew that I knew that I was doing it for the greater good and I was hopefully going to succeed at the end and we would all benefit from that but life at the minute is really good it's it's it's, it's relaxed I'm chilled out to be honest actually I'm saying it's relaxed I've been it's a relaxing day today but I'm, I'm probably I'm more busy than I expected to be after boxing which I don't I don't think is a bad thing you know I'm doing bits and pieces here and there but my family time for me is is very important spending time with my wife and my kids and, and bringing my daughter to our football games and stuff and it's it's great I, I i really love it and i i love that i'm still involved in boxing i've, I've got a gig with with bt sports as their lead um boxing pundit and that's me being involved in the sport but i don't miss it in the slightest i don't miss having to bust my balls every day in the gym So there you have it, the first half of my conversation with Carl Frampton. Come on over to patreon.com forward slash irishmanabroad to hear the double-sized version of this chat, including, like I said, a discussion of integration in Northern Ireland and how when he recorded that documentary with Patrick Keelty, he was very seriously considering moving his family out of Northern Ireland if the violence didn't stop, why he wouldn't want his family to go through that, and how things have changed since then. There's so much more in this discussion to be enjoyed over on patreon.com forward slash irishmanabroad. You gain access to all our weekly episodes in full, as well as the full back catalogue of episodes that we've recorded in in a years including two great Andy Lee episodes and an episode with Steve Collins from all the way back in 2015 that I know you'll love if you enjoyed this episode we have uh, two other shows that come out every single week that's uh, Tuesday Sonia O'Sullivan and I talk about running as mentioned in this podcast on Fridays we talk about US politics with Marion McKeown the only way to hear all of those is to head over to patreon.com forward slash irishmanabroad then the exclusive series that we launched for our supporters over there is the parenting podcast from Irishman Abroad called Honey, You're Ruining Our Kid with my wife, Tina. 
she answers your anonymously submitted questions about the troubles you're having with your kids at the moment and I'm sure they're varied and nobody is in this alone questions that we're receiving are excellent and we're beavering away on getting the next episode out to you on monday week it's uh, it should drop into your feed just after drop off on a monday every second week these are a lot of fun to make and we're getting an insane response to them so come on over to patreon.com forward slash irishman abroad if that appeals to you thanks again to john maher for his extra research to tina for her research brian connolly on sound tina and mikey for making it all possible but hey, come on you need to hear the rest of this chat. Patreon.com forward slash Irishman Abroad.